Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name's Toby Lishtig, I'm the fiction and politics editor of the TLS and a podcast interloper, currently sitting quite literally in the chair of the editor. Yes, Stig Abel is gallivanting off-grid somewhere in the English woodland, and I've been left with a key to the office drinks cabinet. With Thea also away, I'm joined by the paper's arts editor, Lucy Dallas, who Stig usually insists on introducing as an erstwhile indie pop star, but I know only as a trusted colleague and friend. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Toby. Trusted in the sense that we're not, I'm not going to come up with a name for you or a, a nickname. Trusted in all ways. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Was that OK as an introduction? Did that, did that pass muster? That, 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 that was fine. That was marvellous. Should we think up some names for Stig and Thea? I mean, Stig is a nickname, isn't it? No one's actually really got to the bottom of it, but it would it'd seem that... I think it's from Stig of the Dump, but I don't know why. Yes. But I do know that it's not from Top Gear. No, it's definitely not from Top Gear. It, it predates Top Gear. Yeah. I do know that when Stig started off writing for the TLS as a very young man in his early 20s, he went by the name of Stephen Abel mm. because he thought Stig sounded not very TLS, although he used Stig in all other spheres of his life. But I guess once being So made, only for us, he was Stephen? He was only, as far as I know, he was Stephen only for us. And I think that once he was made editor, he thought, well, hang on. <laughs> Maybe the best nickname we can use for Stig is Stephen. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Maybe that would really do it. Right, so he is now Stephen, open quotes, Stig, close quotes, Abel. I love it. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, please Google TLS subscriptions and type pod1 in the offer code section. Uh, You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, it's our entirely legendary biannual philosophy issue. And we offer a selection of pieces tackling some of the most important questions facing both philosophers and humanity in general. What is virtue? What is time? What is religion? And what is philosophy itself? Our philosophy editor Tim Crane will be with us on the line to pick through these debates and in particular to discuss his own essay on the differences between cosmology, morality and the simple human need for kinship. The Austrian author Marianne Fritz was hailed in the 1970s as a literary wunderkind for her debut novel Die Schwerkraft der Welthaltmisse, which describes the descent into madness of a young mother in a thinly veiled post-war Vienna. But as the decades progressed, Fritz's work became increasingly abstruse, 
Dropped by successive publishers and scorned by reviewers, she did get some measure of critical success and went on to win the prestigious Franz Kafka Prize. Jane Yeager will be with us to discuss this most enigmatic of authors, once described, perhaps a little reductively and unfairly, as the female James Joyce. And the TLS's very own Michael Keynes has been to see a new play at a new theatre. Richard Bean and Clive Coleman's Young Marks has just opened at the Bridge Theatre, a spanking new venue for original writing, based in London's Southwark district. The play itself concerns the delinquent domestic life of Karl Marx, with a dash of Monty Python thrown in. Michael will be joining me and Lucy to discuss this, along with Mike Bartlett's new play at the Almeida Albion, which I've taken the liberty of going to see myself. This week, the TLS has been to the theatre. John Stokes went to the Vaudeville to see Oscar Wilde, Maria Margaronis to the Donmar Warehouse for Ibsen Updated, my partner in crime here, Toby Lishtig, to the Almeida for Mike Bartlett's new play Albion, and Michael Keynes, also of this parish, went to the New Bridge Theatre to see Young Marks by Richard Bean and Clive Coldman, and I was allowed to tag along to that one. So we're going to talk about that now as Michael joins us in the studio. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. And first of all, um, what did you think of the theatre in terms of where it is, what it looks like, if it's user-friendly, that kind of thing? Well, that kind of thing, I mean, starting with the location, obviously we may be slightly biased, but I think it's in a great place. Yes, I thought it was wonderful. It was about eight minutes from here. Exactly. Here we are at uh, London Bridge and five minutes or so down the river is this beautiful theatre at Tower Bridge. It is admittedly buried at the bottom of a kind of millionaire's playground and a block of flats, prices starting at about three million, Mm -hmm. uh, very near the... um, the mayor's office and where if anyone remembers this David Blaine sat in a box for 44 days I do remember that do you remember that people used to wave burgers at him exactly (laughs) wave burgers and taunts the poor long suffering anyway enough of him Uh, and and on this new site it's being renewed which I feel great about Uh, the figure I heard was something like 12 and a half million pounds is what it costs to put 200 tonnes of reinforced steel uh, in this in this building on a kind of concrete slab and there it sits it is a wonderful state-of-the-art thing built um, by a firm with lots of experience in building uh, theatres. They've worked on the the Young Vic and and the National itself and the Almeida and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I do think the area is obviously becoming rather anodyne as a result. It is a place that's um, obviously entirely now reflective. It's covered in glass and just reflects the city back at itself. It's a little boring, but I'll take the theatre, thank you. And what about inside? Comfy seats? Lovely, lots of leg room. Yeah, what yeah. did you think? Because comfortable, you are taller than me, so I think the leg room might actually. The leg room you might, might be the judge of the I, leg room. I do sometimes um, not have enough leg room. Yeah, but lots of leg room. And then and and they were talking about it a little bit beforehand, weren't they? And they were saying, no, Michael, you might remember this better than me. They had three, three sort of models of the theatre that they were they were um, influenced by, which is the Greek model which is the amphitheater mm-hmm. michael please tell me when i when i get this wrong <laughs> the english model which is the sort of globe courtyard one this all sounds good yes and the 18th century opera house of which they said their their um example was the new glindbourne theater so that it's balconies but it's quite small and your sight lines are always it's not the huge victorian thing where there's lots of pillars in the way and you're eight miles away from the action it tries to sort of plunge you directly in. Sounds great. It was Sounds great. Sounds like they've done a very good job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was wonderful, and I think. And was I, it quite quite a big capacity? Is it quite it's, a big? It's I think about nine hundred. Right. And they can change that a bit. I mean, the the next production is Julius Caesar, and for that, apparently, they're going to put the 
the two tiers of seats across what is uh, the stage for young marks. So the capacity slightly changes depending on what they're staging. They can take out the stalls very easily. That's mm. apparently rock gig technology, which they're very proud of. Yeah. It's, what did they say? It took wow. three three people a very short time kind just of eight to eight minutes or something so, yes. to just put down. So that's that's the state shows. of the art part, isn't it? I mean, obviously, yeah. in essence, they want you to come and see a lovely play, and it's it's although there are many people there, it's to feel as intimate as possible. It's a very good acoustic. It, it seems mm. to me. Um, and I, I, I hope I have high hope. Well, have high hopes for it, but I also think that it reflects, I suppose, a current development in English theatres of this sort. I mean, Nicholas Heitner mentioned the new Dorfman, and you mentioned the new Glyndebourne, and you mentioned the Royal Exchange in Manchester as being, in a way, models, influences on, on what he wanted um, for the bridge. It's the tendency to have a space that's that's big enough, it has capacity, feels like an event, doesn't feel too much like a coterie space like, say, the Donmar, but that does have all the advantages, as what we've been saying suggests, you know, that it's comfortable, that the sight lines are really good, there's no pillars in the way and no griping when you're told you get a restricted view. I think it's got a lot going for it. Mm. Um, and you said in your piece that it's a new addition to Southwark's already long list of theatres. Do you think the South Bank could rival the West End? What do you reckon? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a sense in which, no, I certainly don't. I can't believe I would ever say such a thing. Which I, think, is, I think you said it in the TLS. Oh, did I? Have I no, said no, it in no, print? No, no, not quite, not quite. Perhaps you could pulp this week's issue. <laughs> uh, no, the, the, I suppose the sense, the sense in which I'd say no is that I suppose the West End stands for something in people's minds, doesn't it? It's it's an entertainment centre. It's not just the theatres. It's everything that goes with it. I can't see people replacing the term West End with the term South Bank anytime soon, although who knows, in the future. I think it's more that if you ask me, if you... If I had to choose, I'd say I'd rather take these really interesting theatres that happen to run along uh, the south of the Thames. I'd take that lot, thank you very much, over the Victorian monsters in the West End where they stage, you know, good shows, musicals, etc., etc., but things that are designed to get in, you know, the coach loads, um, that show their age as, you know, architecturally. And, and the Western doesn't really tend to do new writing in the same way. I mean, yeah, it, it's tends just, to, it, it tends to take things once they've had their success elsewhere. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's just it's not to my taste. I know, obviously, we don't have to choose. It's great that we can have both. But I think it's really great to have this new theatre dedicated to new writing. I mean, they said they're going to do the occasional musical, yeah. didn't they, and the occasional yeah. classic. But this is an amazing thing. I don't think there's been a development in London like this for, for decades. Mm. I mean, they're putting, depending on how you, what terms you use, they're saying this is the biggest development of its kind for 80 years. Yeah. I mean, you have to hedge that a bit carefully, but it is big. It's an event. And, and what, what about this piece of new writing itself? That's, that's what I was about to say. Sorry. I took the words Sorry. out of my mouth. Um, it's <laughs> Young Marks, which um, it follows the fortunes of Karl Marx and his family and friends as down at heel political refugees in London in 1850. Uh, what did you think, is my incisive question. What did I think? Uh, well, I, I enjoyed it. I guffawed along. Many people around me were doing that. Uh, there was a man next to me sighing and tutting away. Also, one man was asleep in a quiet bit. That's true. There was that. And there were people explaining things to one another. Yeah. So, you know, there was all of that. But the audience aside, it felt like it was trying to splice a uh, Coast of Utopia um, by Tom Stoppard, all about Russian radicals. Um, with, say, um, Richard Bean's One Man, Two Governors. It had something of the, the sort of comedy mm. and the energy. Obviously, it's being sold as a, as a comedy, really. Um, but it is also trying to have its um, cake and eat it. Horrible histor- a historical phrase for an historical event. You know, it's trying to be about Marx's life. 1850, 
um, comes after a, obviously a decade of upheaval. He's written the Communist Manifesto with um, Engels, and Engels was, of course, written as a condition of the working class in England. They have been swept up in the revolutionary events of 1848. Uh, Marx has been booted out of one city after another, mm. and now he's kind of washed up in London. And it's a period; it's a really fraught period for him and his his family. So it's interesting they use that framework quite carefully, but to stage a kind of a kind of uh, comedy. Yes, and I thought it was an odd portrayal of him because in one sense he just seemed just like a kind of nightmarish figure causing misery to everybody around him. But also there was a lot of japery and he would kind of scramble up a up a chimney pot and say, I'm off, to, I'm off to have a pint at every pub on the way from here to Tottenham and we all laughed along with him. And it wasn't clear whether he was a, a lovable bastard or just a bastard or just lovable or what 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 we was i mean there was a bit of everything some fine combination of those yeah did, did I, that make him nuanced or did it just make it confused mm, I, I was confused <laughs> I, was, I felt like i think it's it's I just, i'm i'm afraid it's something i'd say in the review uh, rory Kinnear is i think so charming and such a likable sort of figure yeah, yes. whoever he plays i mean you might have seen that a slightly um, dubious television series called Penny Dreadful in which he pre- he plays Frankenstein's monster and he's obviously perfectly nice and terribly sympathetic he's the Frankenstein's monster you'd have around for a nice cup of tea and talk <laughs> about poetry or something he's he's incapable of being horrible and they've given him this part where he does play as you say this this rogue he's he's drunk and he's um, terrible in in failing in his duty to his his family and all the rest of it and he's sponging off angles of course all the time um but at the same time you, you rather like him and you don't get to see i think how probably the the real marks is, is a nastier figure much less forgiving of people especially those he perceives as backstabbers mm. you see a bit of that obviously you do you know there's a um, it's a bit um because you said yeah sorry sorry to go, it's a bit no, monty no. python um there's there's shades of uh, quite a lot of shades of that and there's a bit of kind of people's front of judea there as well isn't there because all the german political refugees meet up and they all kind of slightly hate each other and there's a duel and all sorts of shenanigans going absolutely. on. absolutely I, I think that does reflect a reality in which um marx is fighting people who, who want to take the revolution forward in England in a, in a violent direction, and he isn't in favour of that. Uh, in one group, the Communist League, he, he wins. In another group, he loses, it, which is alluded to in, in the play. But my favourite bit, really... I'm, well, no, in terms, in terms of the sending him up, I sort of liked it when his wife finally need him in the balls. He's sort of <laughs> waiting for that all along. He's such a delinquent. He's yeah. so bad. But at the same time, as I said, because it's Rory Kinnear, I didn't think... Gosh, what a terrible man. I wouldn't like to meet him. You think he's a charming rogue. Let's go on a pub crawl. Yes, 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 quite. And Engels was charming as well. They were all pretty charming, weren't they? They were terribly charming. And life really doesn't look so bad for living in two rooms in the middle of Soho. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Turns out it's really good I mean, fun. it's two, It's meant to be two rooms uh, at the top of... Well, assuming they're, they're thinking of 28 um, Dean Street, where they lived for quite a few years... Um, historically it's meant to be two rooms one of which everyone sleeps in the other one is just for everything until Marx finally branches out in the third room and gets a study in the play there's two rooms everything happens in there but don't worry they've got room for a piano and a bit of a sing-song and a lark and all that sort of business somehow the piano it's meant to be the top floor somehow the piano gets in and out when the bailiffs come and Engels gets it back for them as their guardian angel so you know it's all fine yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, the, there's there's some hijinks. Mm. It's a little bit of communism and a lot of hijinks. Yeah, carry on, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> and from the new play by Richard Bean and Clive Coleman on the South Bank to the other end of town, um, the Almeida in North London, 
where Toby saw Mike Bartlett's new play, Albion, this I week. I did, I um, did. Your review's in next week, so we, we don't want to give too much away. No. Can you tell us the setup and put it in a bit of context? I can probably tell you the setup. So um, uh, it's a play by Mike, Mike Bartlett. He's um, better known nationally, I think, as the, as the writer of Dr. Foster, which is a TV series, but he's written various plays, including Charles III, um, which did very well as well and was adapted for TV. Um, so his new play is Albion, and it is set in, in the present day. Um, it basically, briefly, it's, it features a, a, a well-to-do family from London's posh suburb of Muswell Hill who decide to move out to the countryside and recreate uh, a beautiful landscape garden from uh, many years ago that has sort of gone to, to rack and ruin. And their presence in the village unsettles the locals uh, and there are various other characters who come and go causing friction I won't tell you too much else about it uh, other than to say I think in title alone I mean it, Albion it recalls that's what it's got that Blakeian nod doesn't mm. it You've got Je- is it Je- about England Jez Butterworth Jerusalem springs to mind with its kind of Blakeian over, overtones and also Tom Stoppard's Arcadia so it's I think it's very much set up as a state of the nation play mm-hmm. and um, pretty much every review I've read having subsequently written my review, because that's the order one does, does things, of course, mm-hmm. um, mentions State of the Nation. And I, uh, without wishing to give too much away, didn't really see that. Um, not my nation, mate. I don't know. It seemed like a... It, 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 whatever whatever it does well and whatever it does badly, and you can read my review in next week's TLS to find out, I think it was reaching for something that it, that it isn't. Mm-hmm. The end. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. The TLS goes to the theatre so you don't have to. Uh, many thanks to Michael Keynes for joining us. My pleasure. A common view of religion in atheist writers is that it's a kind of a blend of cosmology, a theory of the universe, and morality, or how best to behave. And a link between the two is commonly made through the idea of an afterlife. Roughly speaking, do good in this life and you'll prosper in the next. But for the TLS's philosophy editor Tim Crane, this conception seems deeply inadequate and its persistence frustrates the proper understanding of the phenomenon of religion and religious belief. Crane identifies a third category which has nothing to do with either cosmology or morality, religious practice itself. And as the paradigm of religious practice is repetition in a social context, identification with a group can be seen as integral to our very understanding of religious belief itself. But how does this definition impinge on our understanding of the transcendent? Well, on the line with me and Lucy to discuss this question and more, along with the rest of this week's philosophy issue, is Tim Crane himself. So hello, Tim. Hi, Toby. And is that a, was that a sort of fair summation of your piece? Uh, absolutely. I, w- I wouldn't say that um, religious practice had nothing to do with cosmology or morality, but that it's a third element in the, uh, in the whole picture. Um, and why do, you, why do you think that element has been so often overlooked? That's a very interesting question. I think um, one reason is that, that I think um, a lot of atheist discussions of religion um, uh, come from a sort of place of hostility. As it were. They, want, they see something that they, that they want to reject. They see something that's irrational, um, archaic or cruel or barbaric or backward. Um, and, and I think a lot of the discussions that go on in, in the works of people like Richard Dawkins are use their own skills in order to combat religion and the skills of scientists and philosophers are you know argument and evidence you know so they say they see the religious cosmology and they say well that's a pretty useless cosmology or they see, or philosophers see religious morality and they say that's no morality at all or and they 
criticise what they understand, the bits that they understand. But uh, I think the, this has led to a real bias in the discussions of the um, of the phenomenon of religion and treated, treating it as a sort of intellectual pathology rather than um, something which I think lies much more at the heart of people's you know practices and day to day lives. Um, Tim, I was interested in the when you say that 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 the the sort of getting together and the communal idea of it has been has been overlooked a lot the idea of being part of a group because there's there there is a a, a, a movement called the Sunday Assembly um and and they they have I I don't know if the if it's a very big movement they've got kind of they've got quite a few um groups throughout the world and it and and they they are doing quite specifically what you're talking about i.e. they're not religious but they get together, I think, on a Sunday, and they all sing songs together, and somebody gives a talk about something, I think, sort of uplifting. And yeah. I'm not sure if they have a little pray, but, you know, I, I don't think it's to anyone specific. But the, it's very important that it's a communal thing. And then they have, you know, in England, they have tea and biscuits afterwards, and there's a choir, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's I think, self-consciously modelled on a religious idea. Um, but it's humanist. And it's not atheist, it's not anti-religion, but it's a human, and it's a recognition of exactly what you're talking about. And um, it would be interesting to see whether that gets any bigger or not. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, and um, something that yeah, fits well into the picture that I have, that there is this need among people to, um, to get together and kind of confront their humanity or their place in the world or, their, or how they belong with others and these huge questions which are hard to articulate and uh, I think um, those um, it's very it's, inter- it's an interesting phenomenon that, that you also have non you have secular versions of this this phenomenon too I mean I I myself I can't imagine anything worse but um. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's interesting because I guess I'm I'd from, rather go to church I'm, I'm from a Jewish background and I'm in, an yeah. entirely secular in that and I find it very easy to identify with a Jewish group whilst having absolutely no interest in Jewish conceptions of God, apart from purely intellectually, so, so I think yeah, these ideas are very, very interesting to me. But I wonder, how do you expect um, those of a kind of more spiritual bent, um, or, you know, believers in doctrinal religion, to react to your to your piece? How would you expect them to read it? Well, my piece is part of a larger vision that's in in, um, in my book, uh, the meaning of belief, and, and that's, um, that's out that's out now, isn't it? The, yeah, it came out uh, on Monday, so I don't say that. The entirety of religion is, 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 is practice and going to church and saying things. I, I also think that there is this um, need for the transcendent, which is why I would say that the, that the Sunday meetings that uh, Lucy just mentioned are not religious meetings. But I've, the way I understand religion, it has to attempt to look beyond this world in some way or another. So, um, so I call that the religious impulse. Um, I... Um, so that's part. That's one one element of my conception of religion. The other element is identification, which is a thing I talk about in the in the TLS piece this week. Um, so, and obviously, the you know the real difficulty here is to generalise. And um, if the if the figures that I've read are to be believed, about you know six billion of the world, seven and a half billion people are religious in one way or another. Um, so I'm generalising about the views of six billion people. So I'm bound not to get all the details right. So, um, but I'm, I feel that those two elements are the core of the great religions. That there's the element of practice and the element of uh, pra- practice and identification, and then the element of the 
search for the transcendent, to look for something beyond. Um, and then this is articulated in very different ways in the different religions. Do you feel there's kind of hope for the, for the Dawkins um, corner? I mean, do you think they're... Do you think they're sort of too entrenched to, to come out of it? Or, I mean, it, it just it, it seems so, so strangely divisive to me. And I, and I just wonder whether, you know, how a Dawkins would react to, to, to what you're trying to say. I really do wonder that too, because um, what I say in my book is quite critical of him and, and some, some of those like him. But um, they're not all the same, those, that group of people. And some of them have more interest in the reality of religion than others. Some of them just want to use their attack on religion as a sort of um, template for the solution of the problems of the world. And, you know, we see, we see religious-inspired terrorism, you know, every week, or, I don't know, we see conflict in the world, and it seems that they want to trace back to religion. And so, they, and they, so I think it's, it's, it's much more of a mission for them to kind of not, not just understand the phenomenon, but to combat it. So, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. The things that Daniel Dennett says in his book, um, Breaking the Spell, I think are, m- are much more in harmony with some of the things I want to say. There's a bit about um, Emil Durkheim in your piece, and you talk about magic as well, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about his philosophy and, and how it fits in with in, with your own line of thinking. Yeah, well, I, as I said in the piece, I'm, I'm reinventing a number of Durkheim's wheels here. That Durkheim wrote this, this wonderful book called The Elementary Forms of Religious Life about 100 years ago, the first few chapters have a sort of conceptual or theoretical account of the nature of religion, and this is where he says that you know it's crucial to understand religion that you that a religion isn't just something that you believe; it's something you belong to. And that's the first point I take away from from Durkheim, and I develop that a bit. And in that sense, it's different from magic. And so he contrasts religion and magic throughout, and he says magic is. Um, you know, you don't, a church of magic does not exist. This is the same famous phrase. You know, that, that a, a magician may have a coterie or followers, um, but doesn't have a church. And then you say, well, why not? And uh, then Durkheim's general characterization of, of, of religion is that it's a collection of practices in relation to sacred things. And so that's the second theme I take from Durkheim, which has also been taken up recently very eloquently by Roger Scruton and others, that the, uh, the notion of the sacred is what, what brings together, actually, the, the element of identification with others and uh, the search for the transcendent. So I think the sacred is, this, is what binds those two things together. And I think the sacred things can even be found in very untheological religious communities like Judaism, as you saying i mean a lot of jews who identify as being jews they keep certain things as sacred still like um you know they may keep the sabbath um or they may um you know not eat certain things you know or keep kosher Uh, and this is this is a way of treating certain things as sacred and certain things as profane i'm interested in the idea of the or the collective thing the idea that you're people getting together and i mean one of my I, things about it, um, which possibly just because I'm interested in this, is partly I think a lot of it, quite a lot of it, is to do with not just prayer but music, because I mm-hmm. think the power of a bunch of people singing together a song that they all know, mm-hmm. especially that they think is 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 meaningful, as it were. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a very strong thing, and I think that can lead you towards the transcendent. You might wander in to a group of people. And do you know what I mean? That you're not, you just think, oh, I've got to go, whether it's church or the Sunday assembly or whatever it is. You might think, well, I'll look in here. And I think people, 
I think that the act of singing together and doing a bunch of other things like sitting yeah. silently, but especially singing together, can lead you towards a, the transcendent. Do you see what I mean? That it could go the other way around. Do you think that's that's? Oh, absolutely. No, I, that's exactly what I think. Yeah, I think that the the idea that the rituals, including the music and um, um, and the specific words, and I think you know it's important that these words are not often rather mysterious to you, um, that these things can give you what uh, one philosopher's called glimpses of the transcendent. I think that that can be the way it is. I mean, I think, um, it, it, you know, in the Western Christian tradition, you know, the, Christ, the tradition of Christian music has been one of the central um, sort of threads of, or core, one of the core threads of Western classical music. And um, what I believe is that, that that music would mean something very different to you if you were a believer. You can, you can get a sense of what people might feel if, if they really believe, but I think if you're not a believer, it's different. Tim, you mentioned Roger Scruton just before, and um, he also appears in this week's issue um, in, a, in a conversation with Timothy Williamson uh, about philosophy yeah. itself. And I just wondered, um, we don't have much time left, but I, I wondered if you could briefly state the positions of the two. Very briefly. I mean, um, Roger Scruton is, um, has a vision of, of philosophy which distinguishes it sharply from just a mere sort of fact-finding enterprise. Um, so if we call a science something that just looks for the facts about the world of whatever kind, then for, for Scruton, philosophy is not a science. What philosophy tries to do is to articulate what the presuppositions of our own existence or our own being or our own subjectivity. And so his approach to this focuses on what's distinctive about us, that is to say the human the human perspective or the human point of, point of view. Um, so art and music and, and religion are very important to his vision of things. Williamson, on the other hand, is a very different kind of philosopher who comes out of the um, what's known as the analytic tradition, which focuses on dealing with problems, breaking them down into manageable sub-problems and applying techniques of logic and semantics and uh, other factual enterprises to, to try and... Um, achieve as much clarity at the smallest level as is possible and then build up from the smallest level into the big things. That's the hope. Um, so they come to blows over this in, in, in the pages of, of this week's paper. And who, whose side are you on? Are you, are you, will you, would you take a third view as a true philosopher? I'd like to have a third view. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I'd like and to have a third view, you, but I think would, if, would, uh, you, would you quickly be able to state that, or is it...? <laughs> uh, I think I need another couple of decades to state that, <laughs> to formulate my third view. We'll but get I, back to you in I, 20 I like years, Tim, both, if that's okay. Both sides. If I had to choose, I would, I would be with uh, Roger Scruton on this. Right. Well, well, we'll leave it there for now, and, and as Lucy said, we'll be, we'll be back in 20 years. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was very interesting, as always. I think we um, should actually ask him again in 20 years. <laughs> we will no doubt I'll, still be here. We'll no I don't know still if we'll still here. be allowed on the podcast. Well, who knows? <laughs> but I would very much like to know his views on that. Yeah, he'll be absolutely horrified. So remember 20 years ago. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Marianne Fritz died 10 years ago, leaving a body of work that has by turns confounded, delighted and infuriated the German-speaking literary establishment. Following the publication of her debut novel, Der Schwerkraft der Verhältnisse, in the late 1970s, a book about the descent into madness of an Austrian woman in a country drenched in unprocessed war trauma, Fritz produced book after book in a life's project that she entitled The Fortress Cycle. The project was, in the words of our critic Jane Yeager, designed to excavate the violence of the 20th century with the rupture of 1914 at its core. Fritz's series of novels is rooted in the tumults of modernity, and her books are also notably modernist in tone, syntactically sinuous and lexically inventive. She increasingly peppered her work with neologisms, as well as peculiar scripts, marginalia and diagrams. She gave up on chronology, and her publishers, meanwhile, gave up on proofreading her. Fritz was a deeply uncompromising author who lived a cloistered existence. Her small flat in Vienna was packed floor to ceiling with a vast archive of material about the First World War, where she wrote ten hours every day. She gave no interviews, no readings, and did not allow herself to be photographed. Now she's finally available in English, thanks to Adrian Nathan West, who's also a critic for the TLS, who's translated Fritz's debut novel as The Weight of Things. Jane Yeager has reviewed this novel in this week's edition, and she joins us now on the line to discuss it. Hello, Jane. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, And thank you very much for introducing certainly me, and I imagine many of our readers, to, to the wonderful world of Marianne Fritz. Um, I'd just like to start off by talking about this novel itself. Um, uh, Possibly a reductive question, but did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. Um, And I think as far as that question's concerned, this book is just so distinct from the rest of her her work, the larger body of her work. And it's also a conventional novel in its sentence structure and also in the way that it really um, seems to be oriented towards being a story, presenting a story that's accessible to the reader and engaging the reader and um, sort of structuring the story so that there's a revelation that um, comes as quite a surprise to the reader. And it's, yeah, it just um, has a lot of um, 
uh, features of a conventional, really good novel. But it's, it's peculiar, isn't it? Because it's sort of the sense of decline in terms of popularity and, and notoriety. But actually, um, f- you know, for many readers, she, she got more and more interesting. Where, where are you on that? Well, I think that it's interesting, the balance of what is and isn't different from her later works, because it has these conventional features I described, but there's a lot that's already there that shows continuity with her later works, like the um, really um, stinging social criticism of the hypocrisy of post-war Austria, um, the preoccupation with, with war trauma and with the, with the individual characters, um, lack of um, agency over the way that uh, the forces of history affect their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this fortress motif that was to become the, um, the overarching title of her project is, is already present there in a lot of ways. So I think it's really interesting that even though it has these conventional features that she moves steadily away from in her later works in other ways. Um, when you look at it through the lens of seeing what came afterwards, so much of that is already there of her larger project. And so I think it's really interesting to consider in the context of the larger project, what was she doing with this book as a sort of opening salvo to the, to the larger project? How would you actually characterise the, the large project? I mean, you mentioned an excavation of the violence of 20th century history, but in what, what, was, what was she trying to achieve overall in her work? In what she calls the fortress, the, the central question is, what is it about Austrian society that enabled or predisposed it to the catastrophes of the two world wars in and it, and the 20th century? And it's specifically Austria. She's, she's, she's interested in Austria rather than the kind of wider German culture. Right, okay. Yeah. She's very interested in Austria specifically, although because her answer is ultimately so linguistic, I feel like it, it implicates the German language more broadly than just Austria. But, and then the other question that's really present in all of her books is like, whose fault is this violence and who suffers from it? But um, yeah, sort of as the works went on, it seems like a large part of her answer is that language itself is so implicated in this violence and this history that she has to dismantle language and reconfigure it in her own ways in order to expose this history and the ways that the sort of workings of power in it. And with each successive book, she does that in a more extreme way or to a greater degree. It's the sense that the language is is, is either breaking down or she's kind of remodelling it. But it's not, Toby said she, that she was compared to Joyce. She's not doing formal experimentation because she's interested in formal experimentation as such. She's doing it because that's the only way she can express the violence of what's been going on. Is, is, that, is that what you mean? I feel like to the question of whether it's experimental, it's kind of yes and no. I mean, she's coming up with something that's experimental in the sense that it's it's different from anything else that, that anyone has done with language. But it's certainly not experimental in any sense of um, spontaneity of play with language, or it doesn't seem that way. It seems that she has a very systematic, steady, incremental project of dismantling language for this goal of answering this 
question if this makes sense yeah and also um in the uh, I, I mean i'm i'm going to do the brilliant thing of describing a picture on an on, on an audio feature <laughs> but in the um with in in the page that we've reproduced that goes with your piece it's it's a page of the manuscript of the later manuscript and it's wonderful it's it's just full of it's got little drawings on it yep. halfway through it's got a hedgehog halfway through a there's, sentence there's a little rabbit for, for yep. listeners as well i mean it sounds quite <laughs> cute yeah. but from what you're saying i think the subject matter is not cute at all um and there's a kind of huge margin and some things are written in the margin and uh, and then something's written down the other side so it's so the so it's the writing's going in all um at all angles as it were and there's a kind of horrible kraken at the bottom which swallows some letters and some numbers is, is that kind of characteristic yeah. of her later work? Yeah, the sort of departure um, from any sort of conventions of the page or anything visual or typographic become um, go further and further as the books go on. And what you mentioned about that it, it looks cute, but it can't be cute. That's actually um, an interesting element of the later work, which is that one of the strands of language um, that she's she's mixing together is a sort of childlike um, fairy tale sort of language um, that, and she sort of splices that together with uh, a more bureaucratic language and then with her own um, neologisms that are more difficult to locate. So this, that, that sort of like um, childish whimsy that you saw on the page visually actually, yeah, that, that is in the written text too mm. as one of the elements. I mean, is she studied in Austria and Germany today? I mean, ten years after her death, is she ta- is she taken very seriously and studied in the academy, or, or is she sort of viewed as a, f- a fairly marginal figure? She um she's definitely taken seriously academically. Like um you know people write theses about her and things like this. And in Austria, she is known in the literary world. I think the further you go into her work, um, the less it's actually read, but um, I mean, she, she has a really interesting position that way. Like she's very, or was until this translation was published, she's very little known outside of the German language world, but she's really not an entirely obscure or forgotten figure in Austria in particular. And, you know, in her lifetime too, she was a sort of funny combination of an insider and an outsider. Like, you know, she had prestigious book deals. She won prizes. She was not, really entirely you know an outsider toiling in obscurity so do, do you think these later books which are presumably going to be in next to impossible um translation projects can you see them coming <laughs> yeah. out in english i mean you know we've got finnegan's wake in various different languages including chinese so you know these things have been done before but can can you see those later ones i think it's natura mass one and two can you see them coming out in english i mean I suppose, yeah, if, if Finnegan's Wake has been translated into Chinese, I suppose it's possible in theory. I I can imagine the second book um, being translatable into English by a translator who is a creative writer. Again, the, the closer to writing, uh, a rewriting on the part of the translator. And But I think it's it's really wonderful that this one has been translated into English. So, for, yeah, so for now, we've got the weight of things to, to enjoy, and you, you would definitely recommend that to, to all our listeners? Yes. Good. OK, well, that's a resoundingly positive note on which to end, so we will end there. Um, thank you very much for talking to me uh, and, to, and to Lucy Jane Yeager. Thank you very much for having me.
It does sound wonderful. I'm interested as well that she's sort of disappeared. Yeah. That she just... Absolutely. Well, uh, certainly, certainly abroad. I mean, it sounds like, you know, she was... But I mean, even when she was there, she wouldn't. She didn't yeah. do any interviews. Yeah, she wasn't absolutely. photographed. And I was wondering if she was... It's interesting what, uh, uh, about what um, Jane said about how well-known she was, because it sounds like she did the same kind of thing as Salinger and, and Thomas Pynchon, but they were very well-known. I was wondering how well-known you have to be in order to disappear, because if nobody knows who you are, yeah. nobody <laughs> well, she, she was presumably well-known enough, in, you know, in, in Vienna. Yeah. Um, and I think and there's, there's an interesting bit in Jane's piece about how she was sort of spurned by various reviewers, possibly because she was a woman in, operating, in the words of Jaeger, yes. in a boys club. Yeah. Um, yep. So but but I think actually that she got quite a lot of notoriety for some of the criticisms that she she was given in the, in, in reviews pages. So, and, yeah. And 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 um, what she also says in her piece that she's she said. What she achieved was only possible through radical disagreeability, which is a brilliant <laughs> <laughs> something for everyone to strive for. Maybe that should yeah. be the strapline of this podcast, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Michael Keynes, Tim Crane, and Jane Yeager. Do go to the tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, which also has pieces on Mary McCarthy, Princess Margaret. Tudor identity politics, German pop music and the coalition years, including a description of Michael Gove by the former Prime Minister David Cameron as completely mad. Next week's paper is our classics number and you can look forward to pieces on the modern odyssey, Jewish history and Roman sundials, as well as a swashbuckling historical romance and the problems with the American diet. And you'll be pleased to hear that Stig and Thea will be back for that. Until then, from Lucy and me, it's goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.